Thank you for downloading Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, an exploration of the Book of Samuel. This series is a production of Produce North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network and is lovingly sponsored by the Newstein family in memory of Rabbi Dr. Joseph Newstein for his fourth yard site. Be sure to subscribe wherever you are listening. And now, Michael Hatton. Welcome back, everyone, to our Pardes podcast on Sefer Shemuel. This is Michael Hatton in Jerusalem. Last time, as you recall, we completed the first book of Samuel, which ended with the tragic death of Shaul. Shaul entered the battle against the Philistines on Mount Gilboa, knowing full well that he would not survive. In the end, as the archers were closing in, Shaul turned to his armor-bearer to strike him down. His armor-bearer refused to do so, and so so Shaul fell on his own sword when his armor-bearer saw that, in fact, he was dead, he too killed himself, and so it was that Shaul and his three sons and his armor-bearer all died on that day on the slopes of Gilboa. Shaul's body was seized by the Philistines, decapitated, strung up on the wall of Beit She'an, and Samuel 1 ended with the report of the heroics of the people of Yavesh Gilad, who rescued the bodies of Shaul and his sons and gave them an honored burial. I pointed out last time that the division into two volumes, Samuel 1 and Samuel 2, is not the product of Jewish tradition. It is not part of the original text. In the original text, there is only one book of Samuel, but it, but it is, of course, convenient to think about these two volumes as relating to the two major royal characters in the book, Saul on the one hand and David on the other. So at the beginning of the second book of Samuel, Shaul now did, we will turn our attention to David and David's ascent to the throne. The text reports that after Shaul was dead and David had struck down the Amalekites who had sacked Tziklag, two days passed after those events and David's return to Tziklag, which means quite a long time has passed since Shaul has died on Mount Gilboa. On the third day after David's return to Tziklag, the news reaches David about the great defeat, and the image is very vivid. A man flees from the battlefield. He is described as having torn clothing and earth on his head, both sure expressions of mourning. He comes to David, he bows to the ground. David inquires, what is it that you have to report? And then he shares the news of the defeat. I have fled the Israelite camp, he says. What took place, asks David. And he reports the people fled from the battlefield. Many of them fell in battle. Vigam Shaul, Vihonatan Bno Metu, and also Shaul and Jonathan, his son, are dead. And of course, the scene of the message being brought back to David, really presented in some sort of a climactic form. First, the report of the people fleeing, then the report of the people dying, then the report of Shaul and Yonatan, David's great friend, 
dying in battle. That is how the news is reported. All of that is very reminiscent of the opening chapters of the first book of Samuel. Remember chapter four in the first book of Samuel? Eli the high priest waiting expectantly in Shiloh, the ark having, having been carried into battle by his two sons, Chofni and Pinchas, and the messenger, a Benjaminite, who fled from the battlefield, conveys the news, the tragic news to Eli about what took place. The Philistines defeated the Israelites, the messenger reports. The people fled, many of them are dead. Chofni and Pinchas, your sons are no more. And the Ark of the Lord was taken hostage. Once again, the news was presented in some sort of a climactic progression. And clearly, the narration is an invitation to think about these two scenes. Remember that the scene at the beginning of the first book of Samuel was really about Eli completing his career as judge. In the aftermath of that news, of course, he will fall off backwards from his bench and die of a broken neck. And all the tragedies that have befallen the people of Israel at the hand of the Philistines are there reported, a direct function of the people being leaderless. And here, once again, in spite of the fact that they had a king, the Philistines have been victorious, and therefore the news is presented with similar effect, a mirror image of that earlier tragic moment. That earlier tragic moment was a direct function of Israel not having a king, and this tragic moment, a direct function of Israel's king falling in battle because he did not follow the will of God. David says, are you sure? How do you know that in fact, what you are reporting is true, namely that Shaul and his son Jonathan are both dead. And now the lad reports, Nikroni Krati, verse number six, I chanced upon Mount Gilboa. There was Shaul leaning on his spear. The charioteers and the horsemen were closing in on him. He turned towards me behind. He turned back and he saw me, he called out to me, and I said, Hineni, here I am. He said to me, who are you? And I told him, I am an Amalekite. He turned to me and he said, stand against me and put me to death because I have been seized, an unusual Hebrew word, by the Shavats, some sort of trembling associated with death, perhaps. There are many commentaries as to what it means. It seems to be that Shaul is saying, I don't have the strength to kill myself. I'm begging you to do it for me. And sure enough, the Amalekite tells David, I did so because I knew that he could not possibly live after having fallen so. I took the crown that was on his head. I took the bracelet that was on his arm and I have presented them to my master here. The text immediately reports that David and all of his men tore their clothing in a sign of mourning. They eulogized and they cried and they fasted until the evening over Shaul and Yonatan his son, the people of God, the house of Israel, who had fallen by the sword. So it's quite interesting to compare the Amalekites' report of what took place 
to what was actually reported at the end of the first book of Samuel, and there are some major discrepancies. According to the end of the first book of Samuel, what was reported is the following. The battle waged, the battle raged against Shaul, verse number three of chapter 31 of the first book of Samuel, and the archers found him. Those that used the bow and Shaul was very afraid of the archers. He turned to his armor bearer and he said, draw your sword and run me through, lest these uncircumcised ones stab me and mutilate me and make sport of me. And his armor bearer refused to do so because he was sorely afraid. Shaul took his sword and fell upon it. So in the narrated version at the end of the first book of Samuel, it seems like the issue was the archers closing in. Shaul was terribly afraid of the archers. He turned to his armor bearer to run him through. His armor bearer refused, and Shaul fell on his own sword. The text then reports in verse number five of chapter 31, his armor bearer saw that Shaul was dead, and he too fell upon his sword, and died with him. So seemingly, Shaul falls on his sword and succeeds in killing himself, and his armor bearer follows suit. In the version reported by the Amalekite, what it says is that not the archers were closing in, but rather the charioteers and the horsemen were closing in, and Shaul was leaning on his spear. And Shaul said to the Amalekite, my life is ebbing, he's in the death throes, and after having found out his identity that he's an Amalekite, he asked of the Amalekite to put him to death, which the Amalekite did. So is the Amalekite actually telling the truth? And perhaps some critical details were left out of the account at the end of Sefer Shemuel. Namely, that Shaul had been gravely injured. Namely, that Shaul's attempt to kill himself had failed, and therefore he turned to the Amalekite to finish the job. That's one way of reading it. And according to that interpretation, which some of the commentaries adopt, the Amalekite is telling the truth. Alternatively, the Amalekite might be lying. At the end of Shemuel, Aphil is reported that Shaul was dead. The Amalekite says, I did it, not because it's true, but because he had an ulterior motive, which was to win the favor of David by being the one to report that he had killed Shaul, his arch enemy. And according to this reading, the Amalekite is not at all telling the truth. Of course, whether he is telling the truth or not telling the truth, the irony is overwhelming. Remember what the ghost of Shemuel had said to Shaul in chapter 28, all of this will befall you because you did not carry out God's command to destroy the Amalekites, one of, one of Shaul's greatest failures from chapter 15 of Shemuel, Shemuel Aleph. And now, of course, the irony is, whether the Amalekite is telling the truth or not, that in this version of the story, Shaul, who refused to destroy Amalek, 
now must beg an Amalekite to destroy him. So however it's read, it clearly is a nod to Shaul's great, perhaps greatest failure, and an indication once again that, so to speak, what goes around must come around. David's reaction is unprecedented. David turns to the Amalekite and says, How did you not fear to stretch forth your hand to destroy the anointed one of God? David calls one of his followers and tells him to strike down the Amalekite, and he is put to death. David says, your blood is upon your own head, which means you are responsible for your own death because your own mouth testified against you saying, I have killed the anointed of God. I have killed, some of the modern commentaries have noted that even if the Amalekite is telling the truth, that in fact he fulfilled Shaul's dying wish by putting him out of his misery, it was not an act of mercy killing, but actually an act which was motivated by the hope of, having ga of gaining something from it. And for that reason, the Amalekite presents not only his message seemingly wrapped in some sort of an aura of tragedy. After all, his clothes are ripped and there's earth on his head as if he regards this as a tragic event, and yet he presents to David Shaul's crown and Shaul's bracelet as if to say, here are the trophies that you must desire because you, David, have been waiting so long for your arch enemy Shaul to be removed from the scene, and I did it with my own hands. And David's reaction, therefore, is a direct response to the Amalekites' boast and the Amalekites' pride in having killed Shaul, the king of Israel, as if that were David's desire. And now David will broadcast an incredibly important message to the people of Israel at large. Namely, I had nothing to do with Shaul's death, and I am terribly distraught by the death of the king of Israel. That's the message that David will now communicate by putting the Amalekite to death. The rest of the chapter is taken up with one of the most overwhelmingly powerful epic poems in the Hebrew Bible, an elegy, a lament over the death of Shaul and Yonatan. And David, in very, very powerful language, We'll turn to the land of Israel, the heights of the land, Hatzvi Israel, the splendor of Israel and its beauty has fallen down on its heights, put to death. How have the mighty fallen? And he will go on to describe how Shaul fell in battle, his shield not anointed with oil, and of course, anointing a shield. In ancient times, a shield tended to be made out of leather, which had been hardened. 
and the leather was then rubbed with oil to make it slippery so that it could deflect the blows of the enemy. But David describes how Shaul's shield had not been anointed with oil in an image of the tragedy of Shaul's death in battle. But of course, we hear an echo. Not only is Shaul's shield not anointed with oil, but the anointed one of Israel is also dead. As for Jonathan, the archer, Jonathan's bow never was turned back. The sword of Shaul never returned empty-handed, and they are no more. So David begins with a lament over Shaul. He goes to a lament, a short one, over Yonatan, and he then brings both of them together in verse number 23, Shaul and Yonatan, beloved and pleasant in their lives and undivided in their deaths. Remember that Jonathan made a choice. The choice was to stick with his father. In spite of the fact that his loyalties were with David, in spite of the fact that he saw David as the future king, in spite of the fact that he dreamed that one day David would be king and he would be viceroy, in spite of all of that, Jonathan remained with his father and entered the battle with him and died at his side. And therefore, they were beloved in their lives and they were not divided in their death. They were more swift than eagles and stronger than lions. And this, of course, enters the liturgy among Ashkenazim as the Av HaRachamim prayer on Shabbat morning before Musaf, when we recall those that have been martyred for their devotion to God. And we quote from the elegy over Shaul and Yonatan. And many phrases, by the way, in this lament have entered into the liturgy and the popular lexicon. That's the power of this poem. The daughters of Israel mourn over Shaul's death. They cry, says David. It was the, it was the role of the daughters of Israel, of course, to sing about the victory and the triumph. Remember when David defeated Goliath in chapter 17 of the first book of Samuel. The women went out and they sang, He ka Shaul David Shaul has struck down the thousands and David the tens of thousands. And now David says, those daughters of Israel are not singing songs of triumph, but are actually crying out. The mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle and the end of the lament is reserved for David's great friend, Jonathan. Tsar li alecha achi Onatan, verse 26. I am greatly troubled and distraught concerning you, my brother Jonathan. You were overwhelmingly pleasant to me. Your love for me or my love for you was more wondrous than the love associated with women. Now, of course, Anyone who has participated in any sort of military context knows that the bonds between warriors are incredibly profoundly deep because they depend upon each other for life and death. And David now says, my love for you, Jonathan, was greater than the love that I had for women. Eich naflu giborim. 
How have the mighty fallen? And the weapons of war have been lost. So the lament ends tragically on a note of defeat. This is, as it were, the closing chapter in the story of Shaul's demise. Now it is quite clear that Shaul is no more, that his kingship is over, that any successors seemingly are no longer available to be king in his place. And David will now prepare to become the king of Israel. Thank you again for listening to Crises and Kings with Rabbi Michael Hatton, a production of Parties North America in partnership with the Corn Podcast Network. If you liked what you just heard, please give a five-star review wherever you download your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thanks for listening.